How are you, Ben? I'm good, Don. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying a lovely Thursday afternoon here in North Carolina. It, it is also a lovely Thursday afternoon here in New Jersey. Well, that's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, really, because the, the geography and weather patterns are, are somewhat different. So um, <laughs> if, that's, if those are the things that you base um, loveliness on. <laughs> which is which is what I'm basing my loveliness on right now. Yes, I I, uh, <laughs> I, I would say uh, I would say that's uh, those are those are valid criteria for for loveliness. So um, we're we're back uh, from our uh, breakfast um, uh, food safety talk recording, which we did in uh, FST 38, and are now back to afternoons, or or maybe not back to afternoons. We're just on an afternoon. So I know that there are a few listeners out there that always love to hear what it is that we're drinking as <laughs> well i know there's one there's one listener who 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 knows who likes to comment on it. so i've got a um i i've got a, a bit of a setup here right now i've got a diet coke that is um two-thirds full it's a little bit warm because it uh just came out of the garage so it's not a a, a chilled heavily chilled diet coke like i would normally have and it is backup um, I'm in my home office today. Um, as backup, I have a Miller Lite. Um, oh, that, wow. Well, and it's just a coincidence. I brought one up here a couple of nights ago that I never opened. <laughs> so if I get really thirsty, I'm, I'm going to go all, all the way. And, and so, the, so the But the Miller Lite is really only there for thirst quenching. It's not for its uh, medicinal properties. <laughs> well, it is a Miller Lite. There, it's very low on the medicinal, medicinal property scale. Um, but yes, and I, uh, I, I um, we we'd exchanged some text texts earlier today on what our plans were before the uh, recording this episode, and I had uh, texted you that I was getting an oil change, and uh, so I went to drop off my car. Well, I went to get an oil change, and it turns out today's like national oil change day, <laughs> which i was unaware of <laughs> i thought i'm working from home today it's what a better time 11 o'clock on a thursday to go get an oil change so but apparently that's when everyone in north carolina I, gets their oil change i guess so so um so any, anyway i got uh i was told when i got there that um it would be about two and a half hours uh, for me to get my oil change done. So I left my car there and asked Danny to come pick me up. But at one point I did weigh this thought of um, maybe I'll go next door to Chili's where there, there's a bar, you know, the restaurant Chili's. And, and I can grab, you know, if, if it was only an hour, I could grab a beer. But over two and a half hours um, in between when I dropped it off and having the uh, podcast recording might have been, there might have been too much medicinal uh, input <laughs> yes. in, into my day. So anyway, so I'm home. Uh, <laughs> So what's going on with you? Well, very good. Well, as uh, as I uh, as I texted you as well. So I uh, when I woke up this morning, it was Akron, Ohio, um, and uh, and so I, I flew home from Akron. Um, and uh, as I as I texted you, I think I said, "What did I say?" I said I needed to go for a walk. 
Uh, I needed to eat some lunch and, oh, and I needed to, to do the audio for, for Food Safety Talk 38. So all of those things uh, got done. Um, and uh, again, keeping with the theme of what are we drinking? So I had just finished my, my Starbucks coffee that where I had, I walked to Starbucks to get, to get a coffee. And uh, I was like, well, I could have another coffee, but I kind of feel like, you know, I, I don't want to like, overdue on the coffee and I really don't need it again for its medicinal properties. Um, so I have, I have a, a nice warm cup of green tea and uh, it is, it is a nice day uh, here in New Jersey, but it's also a bit brisk and I have the windows cracked. So it's, it's kind of cool here in my office. And so uh, a nice cup of uh, green tea was, uh, was in order. Well, that sounds, uh, sounds lovely. Um, so, uh, so there you go, listener who shall remain, nameless who loves to know what we drink <laughs> um so uh i've got a little bit of follow-up uh to, to jump into and i think you that, have a little bit too that, that sounds good yes definitely have some follow-up so um we, uh you you received an, an email message from uh one of our listeners uh tom uh Sieberts or uh Seiberts, um and uh tom tom emailed you uh, a question uh, that that I'm going to get to in a, in a second, but I just wanted to to say that that Tom and I actually met in person last week, um, somewhat uh, fortuitously, I guess. Uh, Tom, Tom was attending a um, a conference that uh, that I was a, a panel speaker at, and so I was I. I Flew into to DC the night before late and didn't go to the early morning sessions of the conference and then wa- sort of sauntered into the big room where the panel discussion was going to be and sat down, opened up my MacBook Air. And then about 20 seconds later, there's this guy who sits sort of beside me. And I was like, man, that guy looks familiar. And I realized that I recognized him from his Twitter um, uh, avatar. Uh, so there there I met Tom uh, in person and, and he's a, uh, a, a real nice dude from uh, the Boston area and he um uh, he's an inspector uh and i think it's a i think he works in uh, seafood inspection uh uh for uh, as part of the seafood sanitation program uh or inspection program that that fda um runs and he's also a, a student uh at the same time and he's taken some classes um and it was it was really nice to just kind of meet a meet someone who I had not known other than through uh, interacting over Twitter as a result of the podcast, and, and we had a nice little conversation, um, learned a little bit about his his family, what his interests were, and, and so it was kind of cool. And then he wrote um, this really nice post uh, on the um, the sciencemeetsfood.org page, which I think is the um, Student Association of IFT. Uh, and at one point, uh, actually, he leads off his article about the panel session with, I'm a huge fan of Ben Chapman of Food Safety Talk. So I thought that was an awesome way to start. A, and that's a, gr- that's a great lead. I yes, guess. yes, he's a, he's a huge fan of you. Um, of, yeah, me of, of food, you. Yes, of food Safety Talk. Of yes. Food Safety Talk fame. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. So, so, and, and if you if you actually go to that that web page, you can see someone's left a comment. <laughs> is that true? It is. It is. Well, that's interesting. I'll go check that out right now with the internet's here. There's a con comment. Um, oh, it's from Don Schaffner. Yeah, a huge <laughs> fan that. of Ben. So angry. <laughs> 
That's incredible. So, no, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure the only reason that Tom mentioned that he was a fan of you is that you were the person that he met at this conference. If he had met me, I'm sure he would have said he was a huge. I'm sure he would I'm have sure. said he was a huge fan of me. It was out of context. If he had written an article about a panel that I was appearing in and said, "I'm a huge fan of Don Fafner," <laughs> it would make no sense. No one right. would know what he was talking about. Just us. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, shout out to, well, to Tom, and he also tweeted me um, yesterday. Or tweeted both of us, maybe saying, "Hey." Where's Where's Food Safety Talk episode thirty eight? I need something to listen to, so so it's up. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, cool. So anyway, do you want to talk about the question that he emailed you about? Yeah. So so yeah, he had he had he had emailed us a question. Uh, he says uh, so. And I'll I'll just read it. Um, he says I want. Um, well, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll paraphrase here. He says, I want to earn a MS and eventually a PhD in food science, and I want to focus on food safety slash microbiology. What areas of research should I start looking into? Uh, I would like to start reading up on different topics to figure out what areas of food safety micro is lacking in research. So if you could point me towards some recent articles or journals, it would be much appreciated. Uh, if you want to address it on the podcast, that would be cool too. Um, and I, I would say my advice to a student, and I, and I think I responded um, to his his email, and I don't I don't remember now if I if I did or not. I'm, you I'm pretty did, sure I, oh, you I did, did okay. and you cc'd me, so I, oh okay, good. So so yeah. you can you can find that while I give while yes. I give an answer. Um, so um, my advice is figure out where you want to go, that is where you want to do your research or who you want to work for, and then use that to direct your efforts. And and actually, now that I, I mentioned that, it does come back to me that he would like to stay in the Massachusetts slash Boston area, which, you know, pretty much like if you want to, the closest would be certainly uh, UMass. They have a food science department. They do have some people that do food safety research there. Uh, Lynn McClandisboro, I think I'm saying that correctly, is, is the probably the most well-known food micro person there. Um, I have a regular ongoing collaboration uh, with Mika Peleg, who's an ag engineer there, uh, who also does some food safety modeling type stuff. So, so certainly there would be good people for for Tom to work with if he if he chose to go there. Uh, you could he could expand out that circle a little further and say, well, okay. New York State, so then that means Cornell, um, and then uh, a little further in New Jersey and Penn State. You know, uh, Rutgers in New Jersey and Penn State in Pennsylvania. So, so those are those are probably. And then uh, the University of Maine in Orono has uh, a food science department as well. So, depending upon you know exactly which way he wants to go and, and who he wants to work for, that would be my advice. So, not not to say not to start on a research topic, but rather to start with a school or to start with a certain faculty member or several faculty members and, and kind of go from there. And, and you're um, in, in your message back to Tom, you said something, I mean, how you started off was kind of exactly what, it, um, what came to mind when the question came up and it was my advice to you is follow your passion. So it's, it, um, and, and I expressed this to, to Tom when we, when we uh, saw each other in person um, that what really matters is what do you what do you want to do? What do you like to do? What are you what are you interested in? And what where do you what kind of gets you going? Um, and and then to find those others out there who also have those those same interests and that you can learn from. Um, 
and uh, and Tom and I also talked a little bit about um, distance programs mm-hmm. uh, at the at the same time because there are some some distance programs out there or or at least partial distance programs um, that might be uh, available and I think that 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 arena is uh, for for graduate studies uh, is expanding actually my my department not in the food safety realm but um, my my department at NC State we have a um, uh, an MS program in uh, family life and youth development um, that's a hundred percent distance no I mean no on-campus classes no nothing um, and it's uh, we've, we've run it now for about two and a half years and have had um, a, a couple of graduates go through the the full cycle and it's really I mean it's it's great to see you've got the, the technology that's available to have these sort of online um, discussions uh, around some of the you know theoretical issues. I teach a class every couple of years um, on family health and wellness, where we talk about food safety and communication um, and um, nutrition and environmental health. And um, it's really neat to see these folks that are, I mean, uh, from all over, um, in, in my case, all over the U.S., um, bringing in their um, their local um Information or their local biases and having these these discussions. Tom, Tom, when I when I mentioned uh, 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 distance, he's he's taking some classes or has taken some classes from um, I think Kansas State and maybe um, uh, uh, Michigan State or he looked at Michigan State. But he said that the hardest thing is you know the, on the design of those classes is how well someone's looked at some of the hands-on lab. Um, materials like like it's in in the food safety realm. It's it's not like you can go in and um, you know, you've got a whole bunch of Petri film and you can do something in your kitchen, uh, although you could. Uh, it's just not often happening. And he said that that's the, for him, as in experience, his experience was there have been some really great courses where the design has been excellent to, to sort of walk you through some of the hands on activities. And then there have been some others that, have, that haven't been. So um, but anyway, it was really it was cool to, to catch up with him and um, uh, appreciate him listening to us. And uh, uh, I'm sure and he's tweeted at us and to us and through us a few times uh, in the past, but it was, uh, I'm, I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll continue to be an active uh, participant on the show. So it was, it was really cool. Yeah. And, and I would say, yeah, I mean, definitely the future, uh, I think the future of education is online um, and, and that will proceed as science does um, one funeral at a time um, because, <laughs> you know, it is, it, is, it, is a, it is a lot of work. It is a huge change for people that are used to giving uh, chalk, uh, you know, presentations with chalk or even with PowerPoint. You can't just take a class and make it into an online class. You really have to give – and this is, you know, me never having done this, no, just knowing how, how hard it would be to, to turn something into – a really good online class that has actual hands-on exercises that that actually work. Um, and I really, I really do believe that that is the future of education. I, I just, I have not uh, been. I'm not a part of that. I mean, I guess technically, maybe you and I are a part of that by doing this podcast yeah. and that we're educating people. But, but that is just something that I, I know that if I got into it, it would just absorb all of my time. And, and I just, I have chosen not to do that. But, but I really, I do, really do firmly believe it's the future. And, and you know, kudos to people like K State and to uh, Michigan State. I think they have an entire online masters in food safety that you can do there. And I mean, good for them for doing it. You know, because it's. It's, it's. I really think it's the future. Yeah, absolutely, and it gives all this opportunity to folks who are trying to do it on their, you know, um, it can't come to a campus or don't live near it and have other things going on in their lives like jobs and families to um, to be able to to just um, have certain 
parts of their day carved out for for education and then being able to access i mean some of the greatest teachers all across the all across the world um through the uh, the technology that's out there i think it's uh, it's great um and, and i agree with you i think it's the way that um you know 10 years 15 years from now um our our university system will, will have um it'll be probably more the norm to have a distance class um, than, than it is today, or at least yeah. components of a class that are distance. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, yeah, for, I mean, we have a huge um, uh, graduate program at Rutgers, uh, and a large component of that are part-time students. And this was, you know, going back more than 20 years ago now, we made the decision to video, to start back videotaping it. We would videotape the lectures. We would mail the videotapes to the remote locations um, to really help those students that were full, worked full-time in the food industry, but yet wanted to earn a degree part-time. We went from there to, I guess, satellite and from there to um, ISDN, you know, real-time video conferencing, and really we're, we're leaders in doing that. We've been a little bit slow. So that's all, well, I guess the if you mail the videotapes, it's asynchronous. But you know, certainly in terms of the synchronous distance learning, we've we've been pioneers in terms of asynchronous, you know, kind of self-paced, uh, computer-oriented. I think we've been we at Rutgers University here have been a little bit slow with that. But uh, you know, again, it's all the world. The world is changing. I mean, we're we're you know part of that with IAFP. I'm one of my big things I've been pushing during my time on the IAFP board is to try to do more in terms of webinars, uh, to try to create that content library. And, and you know, you've been involved with that in terms of um, the, our uh, um, new media task force. I mean, it really, it really is, it really is changing. And sometimes, sometimes it, it seems to be changing incredibly fast and other times it's just very frustrating. It's changing so slowly. Hmm. Yeah. I, when you mentioned asynchronous classes, that's the last time I taught my class, I did it um, this distance class in my department did it totally asynchronous and is um, I, I'd put a bunch of time into it um, up front so uh, it's it's a short intense uh, class it's in a summer it's a summer session class so it's already shortened but it's a we have split summer sessions so it's um, an entire you know normal semester course that we only have five weeks to deliver it so I did um, and it's uh, it, it's over the month of um, July um, you know, every, every other year. And, uh, I spent, man, most of, uh, June developing the lectures for it last time. And, and so I, you know, was able to put a bunch of stuff in, in the can as, as they say, and then release it, uh, through Moodle site sort of as the, as I thought the class was, was progressing. And I think that the students enjoyed, and th these were, um, in between, you know, some some lecture components or some of the the stuff that I recorded might have been as short as ten minutes and and really no longer than thirty minutes at any time and little chunks, little modules that that I was able to to put out and um, I think I, I mean I think the students appreciate the asynchronous portion of things, especially in that short course where if it's there and available and they've got the time, they can run through the course much of the the lecture material and the learning. Um, you know, early on, and then spend a uh, vast majority of their time on on assignments because those those dates didn't didn't move. I, I didn't. I don't know how well. I, I mean, I'm going to change it for the. I, I teach it again this summer, and I'm going to change the process on what I did um, because the asynchronous part of it um, made it so I had no connection with the students, and I didn't know if they were 
um, getting the material or understanding what it is I was uh, I was asking them to do until assignments started rolling in. And in a five-week situation or five-week class situation, um, the assignments kind of stacked on one on top of each other. So an assignment would roll in and then another one would be due and, and I'd be caught up in, in grading those, those assignments. And I, I never felt like, uh, I mean, the class was, I think it was 17, and I think four or five of the individuals really got it, and they just flew with the material. And and three or four at sort of at the bottom of the the course, um, never never really caught on to what it was that I was I was talking about or looking for. And I think I might have been able to catch that as an instructor had I had synchronous time. So I'm going to do some sort of a um, like a mixed offering on it this time with some asynchronous and some synchronous, but, but to be able to, to connect with those students, I didn't, I just, I didn't feel like I did a great job as an instructor looking at it at the end. Like it was like, man, I wish I would have um, recognized this uh, as we were going along. So, so there's, you know, trade backs to this. It's always a learning process on how to do these things. So, 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 so how would you, I mean, so did you, did you have email contact with them? I did, um, but that, but but that, but that, but they could, but that was like at their initiation. So exactly, right. And and it was, um, it was at because people were moving at at really different paces. The ones early on, I mean, the ones that that did very well in the class. I think they they spent a lot of time early on going through it. So so in that first week, I mean, they were um, in some some cases really three weeks ahead on the material than, than some of the other um, students who are working at a slower pace than, than what I kind of wanted. Like they were able to jump forward because all the material was there and it was like in the Moodle site, once you completed some, you can, you can open it all up. Um, so I, and, and I didn't want to slow anybody down, especially since it was uh, this summer, summer class. So but that was what I think what I'm going to what I'm going to do this time is have a or what I'm going to do is is have um, offer the same types of lectures and then have a mandatory synchronous class um, twice a week just for an hour. And really to be almost like a tutorial where, the, you know, I expect that they have seen the other um videos like the, the modules and then we'll we'll have uh, some sort of facilitated discussion just to make sure everyone's you know having some sort of interaction hmm. yeah that 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 sounds that sounds good yeah, so we'll, we'll see how it goes it's uh it was, it's one of the challenges i think of of distances you don't you know when you give a lecture you can you can kind of see when people are lost and when people are engaged like just by whether they're sleeping or not <laughs> or, or well and you know this is something that i struggle with teaching podcasts or not teaching podcasts in te- <laughs> <laughs> yes teaching it's my it's my head hitting the microphone um uh, uh doing doing webinars um podcasts i'm just talking to you um but doing uh, doing webinars where you just sort of i mean podcasts are with another person are way easier but but when you're when you're when you're doing a webinar you're like okay i you know pause for joke hold for laugh you know and and there there are some kind of crude things that people can you know signal on the webinar speed up slow down haha funny face you know but but it's really um it's very weird doing that and i and i yeah i can imagine that with an with an with an asynchronous class you 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 have the potential to feel very disconnected again over i mean with a webinar at least you're only feeling disconnected from the audience you know until the q a so it's only an hour right but with a with a class yeah you could feel very disconnected for weeks yeah Exactly, and, and you just don't kind of have a sense. I've I've been doing more and more distance um, 
I, I guess updates or ed, I guess education with the agents that I'm that I support um, and with others within North Carolina. Like uh, yesterday morning, I did a, um, a an hour and a half long. Um, I guess it was it was like a meeting or I don't know it was a webinar I guess but it was with a small group of um, the FNAP leadership team so the expanded food and nutrition education program you've got uh, I mean there's programs like this uh, federal programs that are set up in states all over um, the U S and um, and so I, I kind of just did this you know I had I don't know twenty slides or something and I went through what has happened in food safety that I thought was important over the last, you know, eight months that, that might apply to them. And even then, you know, it was synchronous. Um, I used slides and a little bit of video, but, but they were still, I mean, largely nameless and, and, or largely faceless, I guess they weren't nameless, but the interaction was, was difficult. And then that's when everybody even has, you know, microphones and video and stuff. So it's, you know, it's, I think that you've got to have, You've got to have the right like distance education or distance you know, learning doesn't it's not going to work perfectly for everybody. And it's got to be the right instructor and the right students to make it. And I think if, it, if you can get that combination, then it's it, you know, it's amazing. It, it's absolutely um, the, the way the, the way to go. And it makes things so, so great when you've got that um, that audience that that is is tied into to the technology and they're on you know their their computer and they're googling stuff and they're sending you links like oh what about this and let's you know let's talk about this like it's it's very um very much the way that i think my lifestyle is uh but it's not um it it seems like it's a it's a a bunch of skills for for everybody you've got to um uh, learn and, and adapt to uh, yeah I, I i definitely agree so um so let's see. So I, I want to talk about uh, my time in Italy, at least as much as I can say, <laughs> and then I want to talk about my most recent my most recent trip to uh, to Gojo. Um, and I see you have here that you want to talk about yeah, the Consumer Federation of America thing that you went to. So um, do you want to do that first? No, I, I'm sure. Well, I've got just uh, one quick thing on this. Um, so the um the panel that i was on was with um two other um two other folks uh and their names escaped me other than uh i think it was linda weatherly and um a guy named ken maybe and i will get these notes to andreas for the link um but uh the the panel was really um, spend 10 minutes uh, talking about food safety or food risks and how they're discussed online. And then we open it up for uh, almost an hour of, uh, of questions from the audience. And there was about 400 people there um, asking questions. And it was really, it was, it was cool. It got some great questions. And just the little piece of follow-up is the ag gag discussion um, that we had in our last, uh, in uh, episode 38 around this idea of, um, uh, states putting up legislation to stop uh, exposés um, came up, and uh, in in this idea of transparency, and the quote that I had that like six people tweeted afterwards, which means I guess it was good. <laughs> it was good, yeah. yeah I guess it, I guess it was I was on my game. Uh, was I, could, I said you can't say here's how our food is made, but only show the good parts. That's uh, it. So I like that. Uh, it, I, I'm glad I got it out right uh, for it. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was good. good it was a good uh, uh, panel. And so uh, I think it, um, it, was, it was absolutely worthwhile. And thanks to Chris Waldrop at uh, Consumer Federation of America to, for inviting me. It was, it was a really interesting discussion. Good. 
Good. Now that's yeah. That sounds like you were doing doing good work. So so I um uh, I was recently in Verona, Italy, uh, for and actually you're you're familiar with these folks. So this was a a conference that was uh, organized by the I keep forgetting their their the what their acronym is, but it's ISGP. It's the Institute for Science and Global Policy, and they are an interesting group. Um, basically the um the the format of the conference is unlike anything that I've ever been to. Um, so first of all, uh, we should explain uh, for the listeners that it uses something called the, the Chatham House Rules, which are a set of um, uh, protocols for how you conduct a conference. And actually, I was talking I was talking about this with my son, and he says, oh, that's like in that episode of The Wire. And I said, no, no, you're thinking of Robert's Rules of Order, <laughs> uh, which, which is, it just, it's just so great that my, my son listens to, or has watched The Wire and also is familiar with Robert's Rules of Order. Wait, are you talking about Cider House Rules? <laughs> yeah, that's that's different. That's that's actually a fact sheet that I wrote when the when the uh, the the the, uh, the juice has approved. Uh, so if you Google if you Google cider house rules, uh, Don Schaffner, Siobhan Duffy, you'll find our you'll find our fact sheet on the uh, <laughs> on the uh, on the on the juice has approved. But um, but I digress. Um, and and so the chat the Chatham House rules are basically the the atten- except for the presenters, the the attendees are all. Um, uh, uh, confidential, and so what they did—they made a kind of a big show about this. It's a little bit of—it's a little bit of theater. So they hand out these numbered lists. Um, I had number two of thirty-five uh, of the attendees, and then they make a big show about they have to get it back from you. And I felt like saying, awesome. "Well, sure, I'll be happy to give it back to you." But meanwhile, I took a picture of every page with my smartphone last right. night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, of course, I didn't do that, but 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 I mean, uh, it's just so so it's kind of, it's a kind of a little bit a little bit silly, but. Um, but the idea is that it allows people to speak freely. So, and they will announce, they will say who who the institutions of the people that attended. So, I can tell you, for example, there were people there uh, from the University of Nebraska. There were people there from Cornell University. There were people there from Conagra and Cargill and Mars. But I can't tell you who those people were. And and so and and so that's that's kind of the one part of it that's interesting. The other part of it that's interesting is they let us or they they asked us they required us actually to write a three page paper focusing on food policy around or ed, and the theme of the particular meeting that we went to was innovation and science um, as it relates to food safety, food security, and food defense. And so I wrote about risk assessment and particularly quantitative risk assessment. Um, and so we do this three-page uh, paper with policy bullet points at the end and then and I and I guess I, I mean I guess the some of the other people struggled with saying what they had to say in three pages. I I for some reason did not struggle. Uh, <laughs> I had to struggle to write three pages, but, um, but that's just the way my brain works. I guess um, it, was it was it all, all your time that you spend on Twitter? The 140 characters has made me a much better writer. Yeah, because. Yeah. It's I I'm, I need to get points across much quicker than I used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just I I I don't know. I just I always I always have to sort of start from what's the point that I want to make and then expand it. I don't just you know, like vomit out ten pages and then edit it down. I mean, I'm happy to do that, but I find that editing down very easy, and I find sometimes making it larger than I feel it needs to be to be problematic. But then the most fun part was you give basically a five minute presentation um, on your three page paper, and and the best part of the 
the whole conference was they had a bell. <laughs> and, and after five minutes, they'd ring the bell. So it made, it made me think of uh, episodes of Roderick on the line uh, with, with Merlin and, and John uh, ringing the bell. But, but so that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, I felt like what I wanted to do is when somebody was giving, was, was making a long point while, while I was presenting, I wanted the bell to, to ding them <laughs> off when they were talking for too long. Because as with, with so many of these things, and it's not just in academics, it's other folks, but you know, people, people, before they can ask a question, they have to give a speech, you know, I mean, you sure you've seen this at conferences, but, um, yeah, I I think I'm, I suffer from that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask a very important question, but first let me put it in context for you. Right, right. Uh, I I don't know how I started doing that, but I've caught myself doing this where, (laughs) where I never just have a question. It's like, well, you've mentioned this and let me, uh, frame this. Uh, so your, everyone understands what it is I'm interested in. And I've started like noticing that I do that and I've got to I like ca- try to catch myself anyway sorry to, oh. to really derail that no 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 problem so um the um so so again five minute presentation followed by 90 minutes where it's it's kind of like a PhD exam on steroids right mm. because there, there's got to be I mean it's all the people around the table so it's the eight presenters plus must be 24 25 30 other people that just ask you questions and, and push you on your policy points. Um, so, it, but I, I had a, I had a blast. I mean, I was a tiny bit nervous at the beginning, but then once we got into it uh, and at one point, so the guy, the guy who was kind of the, the main guy behind all of this is a guy by the name of George Atkinson, who was the science policy advisor for uh, Colin Powell and for Condoleezza Rice when they were both uh, secretaries of state. And so this is a pretty, you know, pretty high level policy dude, a former uh, reform physicist, as he describes himself. Um, and, and he after he retired from that, he, he felt there was a need for policy um, for, for, to help scientists talk to policymakers, um, and, and again, to give policymakers scientific information. So he formed, he formed this institute and they've been going around, uh, doing these, uh, doing these conferences. So it actually was a whole lot of fun in the middle of my thing towards the end, George said, well, you're far too comfortable. So I'm going to ask a question, uh, to try to make you uncomfortable. And it didn't work, of course. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we, we had, it, it was, it was just, it was a lot of fun. So it, and it was, of course it was in Verona. Actually, it wasn't in Verona. It was in a, a villa that's been turned into a hotel outside of Verona, but it was really, uh, really a wonderful, uh, wonderful location and good stimulating, uh, stimulating conversation. Uh, but it, it was also good to get, to get back home and, and kind of get on a more normal, uh, uh, time time sleeping schedule but then the other my other follow-up thing is uh this week just this morning like i said i woke up in akron ohio because i was visiting gojo and uh, for those that don't know gojo are the makers of purell that's kind of their their claim to fame purell uh, hand sanitizer and we were there because we've been talking with them for a number of years i'm a big fan of what they do they're a small privately held company so they're not they're not traded on the stock exchange and they are incredibly committed to science. And so while other companies will go after like the short term buck um, and like, you know, kind of, oh, we can write some good marketing copy around this, that, that Gojo really, I mean, they don't just say it, but they really do want to get the science right and then 
the the money the money will take care of itself. In other words, let's let's really think about this issue. Let's do the research that we need to do to get the science right, and then we'll figure out how to make money later. So it's 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 a very Apple like what I've found mm. is because so Apple is concerned with making excellent products, and and yeah, they want to make money, but it's not like how can we make the most money possible. It's how can we make the best products possible. And guess what? If we make the best products in the world, people will buy it and we'll make a lot of money. So. Anyway, I, I'm assuming they make a lot of money. They're privately held, so I have no idea. But um, uh, very impressive. And, and my graduate student, Dane Jensen, did a little bit of hand-washing research at the end of his master's degree, and we decided he was going to do uh, something around hand-washing and hand sanitizers for his PhD. And so they're not funding any research, but they did. I mean, we paid for our way out there. They, they hosted us while we were there, you know, very nice meals and, and nice hotel and, and all of that. But we really – we spent like a day and a half basically designing – Talk, well, talking about hand washing science, but then talking, basically designing uh, what is going, what are going, to, what what is Dane going to do for his PhD, and and help, and they helped us with design of experiments. They're going to give us some some soap um, products that we're going to evaluate, and we're going to sort of look at hand washing and and a number of the sort of the critical fat. I mean, you know, there's so much in the in the food code about hand washing that we just really don't know. I mean, people say that they know it, but then if you actually go to find the literature, you know, look in the literature, you don't see it. So anyway, so very excited about that, and very, but but again. And also glad to be back from traveling again uh, for at least a few days before I get off to the IAFP board meeting next week. So anyway, so that's uh, that's what I've been up to. So you're going to be in Charlotte next week. Is that true? No, no, oh, no. Charlotte meeting was was before. Ah. This is the twice a year in Des Moines. Des Moines. So. Uh, yeah, so tw- so twice a year we meet at the annual meeting site, and then twice a year we meet in Des Moines. And so this is our not our winter board meeting, but our spring board meeting, which is in Des Moines. Well, enjoy Des Moines. I, um, my only time in Des Moines was for an IAFP. Um, That's right. Strategic planning yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. And yeah. had um, on the advice of I don't know who it was, like the best scallops, scallops. I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, in you know Des Moines, because known known for their scallops. No, very very much uh, a scallop hotbed. Well, it's it's so funny because last night they took us out to uh, to a restaurant and and my my graduate student Dane was with us and uh, who who apparently used to listen to the podcast but apparently he's been so busy lately he hasn't had time so sure. and shame on him yeah but uh, he had seafood and I was joking about well yes you can get good seafood in the Midwest and I actually mentioned the excellent scallops <laughs> that you can get at this one restaurant in Des Moines so that that's the second time that's come up today <laughs> that's incredible um, hey so going back to your Verona. Um, uh, conference experience. Let me let me ask you about how. So, w- would you run if you were to you know do something on a smaller scale? Would you use the uh, Chatham House rules to run a, a you know a meeting? Was it was it useful? Was it a useful process uh, on generating dialogue? And I think about you know uh, at a state level when we look at things like you know food safety regulation or or whatever you know something something on a on a smaller scale than this you know large um, how do we how do we shift the world of food safety? But is it was it was it useful? Like what like was it a did it have an outcome that's that's a really good question and i think it it wasn't maybe as useful as i thought um but yeah there definitely were especially as we all kind of got cuz we were there for 3 days and so by the time the end of the third day we kind of everybody kind of got to know each other we'd had you know um meals together mm-hmm. we'd had drinks together um people and and so uh, what i didn't mention is so we have this so we have these eight 
uh, seven or eight presentations, and then uh, and then the the last night. Um, we all get to no, yeah. The last the last night, we all get together in groups and we write like what we think the take home messages are, um, and then and and then and then that actually gets turned into text, and there are publications that come out of these conferences. And so, at that point, um, you know, again, the wine is really flowing, and we're trying to come to some consensus and, and write stuff. But but particularly the point about Chatham House rules, I think, was every once in a while somebody would say, well, you know, I mean. We know the conference is under Chatham House rules, but you could tell that somebody was about to say something really important where they'll say, well, remember Chatham House rules. And then they would go and they would say something that was, you know, kind of critical of, of their own organization or was critical of, of somebody else that, that they would, you know, that they maybe wouldn't have said in, in an environment where that, what, where that wasn't the case. So I, th- I think it helped. Um, I, 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 what I mostly liked was the idea that you had, kind of experts and policymakers around the table together, kind of all debating this stuff and, and hashing it out. That, that to me was probably more important than the Chatham house mm-hmm. rules, but, but it, it, I think, it, I think that ability to freak, to, to speak freely, that ability to speak without attribution was important, but people were still like, so there were people there from USDA um, and, the conference proceedings will say that USDA was there. So they were still very much concerned about, well, you know, we USDA can't have this policy point be this way. We can't have our name on. So so there was still that idea of, well, we still have to project not the I want to say project the party line because it wasn't anything as bad as that. But it was just sort of like, well, you know, we can't we can't agree with this. We can't mm-hmm. we can't. And, and it's all about building consensus. And what are the and that was, you know, one of the things that, that George the George was very keen on. And it's it's like, well, yes, it's policy is complicated. Yes, these issues are complicated. But what are the things that we can really all agree on? And so that, that to me, that was that was very helpful. Cool. Well, that's that's, uh, that's good. I'm glad um, that it was um, that the process was was useful because as we had, we had talked about, I think offline that um, this is something that I was kind of interested in just from a um, an exercise standpoint as a I was in, uh, uh, as a potential participant so um um and a, a which i can't say because i wasn't so right but <laughs> i haven't well, broken uh, any of sired house rules on that i don't think right but what I, what i can say is i think that you would enjoy it very much you would enjoy okay. it either as uh a participant or as a presenter it's it is i mean it, you know i mean gosh we're two guys that every two weeks get together and <laughs> yeah. talk about stuff so what would be more fun and and occasionally do write stuff too so uh i, I oh and and the other thing too that i wanted to say and i can i can say this because she was one of the presenters so her identity is known um and i don't know i i, I had i guess i had sent you an email and of course with your email system if you don't get to it in a few days it just scrolls <laughs> off the bottom of the list and you don't respond but do you know lynn Fru- I do. I, oh, yeah. yeah. And I didn't answer. Yeah. Well, so I don't know her personally. Okay. Uh, but man, do I ever know her stuff? I mean, out of all the um, sort of risk perception work that's out there, she's uh, she, she's the top of the top of the pile. Um, and in fact, of you know, when you have new students come in and and you want to show them like sort of your philosophy on what it is that you do. I'm, I'm, I assume that you do this when it comes to the, the work that you do. And you kind of be like, look, these are some of the seminal papers that matter to me. Um, there's 
two or three of hers that that go to every one of my students as they start in this sort of package of papers like you need to read this because this this stuff really matters like the way that she does this and I, not just her i mean the team that she has behind her uh and uh the the students and postdocs that she's worked with um yeah she's she's great i can't can't say enough about the uh the stuff that lynn produces yeah, so so it was it was a, absolutely a delight to meet her. She is, um, she is a very uh, uh, very funny very funny lady, especially as she's, after she's had a glass or two of wine. Oh, and nice. and I and she I. <clears throat> I would I I could you know I mean if you've been around somebody for a couple of days and you 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 kind of know their thing, you can. <clears throat> You could pretty much like push their buttons, or at least I find I can push their buttons, and it was a lot of fun to, to kind of push push her buttons and and say stuff that I knew would kind of get her riled up. But but I mean, absolutely, just a really clever, spot on. Very, I mean, again, it's it, the the hanging around with Lynn is was as, as much fun as hanging around with you and Doug because I know I know the way you guys look at stuff, and and I really, I'm again, I don't consider myself a, a communication expert, but I really appreciate people who understand like the way. People People think about stuff, and and so again, it was just a lot of fun to ha- hang out with her. So, uh, and and uh, also had mentioned to after I got back, I ran into my my uh, also uh, communication buddy uh, Bill Hallman. Again, mm. I, I really seem to like these people that study communication. So yeah, good, well, good, and good we buddy, like Bill. and we like you. <laughs> oh, that's nice to say. <laughs> um, uh, mentioned to, to Bill Hallman um, that. Uh, 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 that, that I had run into Lynn, and that he he also had very nice things to say about her. So, and she's on, and she's on Twitter too, apparently. Oh, sweet! I didn't know that. Yeah, I, she doesn't she doesn't tweet too much, but uh, maybe she'll. Do you think she'll download the podcast but not listen to it? I don't know. I try, I'm, I'm just trying to think. I wanted to I wanted to mention that I did the podcast, and I wanted to kind of work it into the conversation so it didn't look like I was plugging it too much right. either to the conference attendees generally or to uh, to her in particular. And I think I failed at that. So. Huh. Well, hey, I dropped when, at the uh, Consumer uh, Federation of America Food Policy Conference that I went to. I dropped that um, that you and I do the podcast together, and you know, some, it said something about my, you know, esteemed colleague Don Schaffner at Rutgers, and um, I. I uh, I followed up afterwards, totally independent of the, the conference, with um, uh, Deb Palmer at Rutgers, and she said this was and who I didn't know, but you know, oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so I called her on on another matter, and she uh, she was like, "Hey, were you? Did you?" present last week at the you know the food policy thing i was like yeah she goes oh yeah you mentioned this podcast you do with don shafter i know don shafter really well and i was like i know don really well too so we had a nice conversation <laughs> oh, about that very good so what i'm trying to yeah. say is every time i go out there i'm plugging this good. podcast yeah i try i, I try shamelessly yeah. i'm yes. plugging it <laughs> Um, well, hey, let's jump into – well, well <laughs> now, now, yeah. that, now that we're 45 minutes in, we should probably do the podcast. We got new stuff, yeah. Well, we, we, actually, we have to do one other thing uh, before we get too far uh, in. Oh, it's not real follow-up, but it's – you know, we, we – We've done it once. We can't. Uh, it, we can't oh. let it slip. Um, uh, oh my gosh! Yes, yeah. I I opened the file and then I completely forgot. But we trivia. Bug trivia. Bug trivia. Sorry, I forgot what it was called. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Nice, nice. Right. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I got so so one uh, the, the this is uh, on the list and again we mentioned this in episode thirty eight uh, that um, that Carl Custer had uh, has been writing some stuff and sent us a sent a, a bunch of people this kind of list that we have now um, I guess appropriated uh, but also are absolutely giving credit to to Carl um, on kind of new cool new, cool facts about uh, bacteria so I want to the, the one that I wanted to highlight is is one that's near and dear to, I think to both of us. Um, this week, unless you had one that you would planned on, I don't want to step oh, on your toes. No, I, I was just going to do the next one on the list, but by all means, I'm go, go for it. Yeah, Clostridium botulinum, which Let's is not. It. Yeah, which is not. So it was first recognized and isolated in 1895 by Emil von Ergmegnum. Uh, from home-cured ham implicated in a, in a botulism outbreak. The isolate was originally named Bacillus botulinus, and again, this is my favorite part, after the Latin word for sausage, botulus. So what, I mean, botulism, I didn't know this actually until more, I don't know when it was. I don't know how I missed this in food microbiology. I don't know if it came up, but it is sausage poisoning. That's what botulism is. That's what it's, uh, it, it translates to in, uh, in Latin. And it was a common problem in the 18th and 19th century Germany. Um, and and uh, it says here that it was most likely caused by botulism. I, I had written something a couple of weeks ago uh, on uh, botulism for Barf Blog where I pulled some of this stuff up. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, I want to talk about it. Um, so bacteria is notorious for producing the most lethal bacterial toxin, a neurotoxin. The spore is quite heat resistant. Um, and uh, failure to inactivate the spore has led to a number of cases from inadequately heated home canned products. Um, although C. botulinum is anaerobic, it cannot grow in the presence of oxygen. It's been implicated in some surprising cases. One was baked potatoes that were stored in foil to make tzatziki. Um, the bacterium grew in the wrapped potato and the neurotoxin caused 30 cases. And that's an interesting case um, that I, th that one, it's like the, to the um, discussion on trichinosis and people overcooking pork, that one case of foil and potatoes has made it through to kind of the, it, it makes people really worry about foil potatoes uh, as a result of <laughs> like, like, have you noticed that? Per, like perhaps, oh, perhaps unnecessarily so. Yes, perhaps unnecessarily. So there was, so I, I only know of one other baked potato case and actually, I think this is what I wrote about in this article was a, a guy in Owen Sound, uh, Ontario, so about an hour and a half north of Guelph, um, where I went to school, who got uh, bot who got botulism from a baked potato as well, um, and ate it at a restaurant. But I don't know of any others. But those, I mean, those two have um, scared the the pants off of food service uh, employees, so they won't. Um, just hold baked potatoes, hopefully at uh, um, room temperature. But it's it, you know not we're, we're not in the magnitude of illnesses that we see uh, out there. Um, so Carl continues that the threat of botulinum uh, was the basis for political fighting in the 70s between industry who wanted to preserve the use of nitrate as an anti-rancidity agent and consumer groups concerned about nitro uh, nitrosamines. Um, nitrosamines. Nitrosamines. See, I, I just read these things. I never the actually say the them. accent on the wrong syllable. Mm, damn it. The threat of either was minimal, according to unpublished uh, FDA assessment. I, I, I have to say, John Gruber also does not pronounce things correctly. So uh, he's and he's a pretty smart guy too. So you're I, you're in very good company. Good, and I, I don't know. I think if I hear them, I'm better at it. But oh, 
Yeah, people, and this is this is a very it's actually a very common problem amongst people that that read a lot because they never they never hear it used in in conversation. No, exactly, and that uh, that's one of the words, and I'm not going to try and say it again. Nitrosamines. Nitrosamines. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, Carl goes on to say um, that the funny thing was that the chemist set a standard in time and temperature for frying bacon for nitrosamine analysis. Thus, wetter bacon would be less likely to form nitrosamines, drier bacon more likely. Alas, diluting the salt and nitrate diminishes the anti-botulinal effect, um, as shown by uh, uh, some papers from Gibson and Roberts in the late 80s. And maybe we can – maybe uh, Andreas will be able to pull those uh, for us. Um uh, and that that's kind of the the interesting stuff for me. I, I like that it's called botch uh, that it's called s- sausage poisoning. <laughs> that's it. That's why I well, love it. And and I have to say, who the hell wants to eat wet bacon? I mean, that's, that's the good bacon is the stuff that's really crunchy. True. True. Good. Uh, exactly. I I like. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So so I mean, yeah. Bot Bot is a very interesting organism. I because of my my uh, uh, friend and colleague Tom Montville, who's a bot researcher, I've been able to be involved in uh, in some of that research doing some some modeling stuff uh, I do know actually I do know the very well the the Gibson and Roberts uh, papers from the 80s those were some early modeling efforts actually by uh, Terry Roberts who's very well known in the in the field of uh, predictive uh, food microbiology um, and yeah it's it's a it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting organism and of course you now everybody knows now that you can make perfectly healthy safe and natural um, food products by using celery juice Right. Of <laughs> instead course. of instead of those nasty chemicals, <laughs> and, and of course, celery juice has uh, nit- naturally occurring nitrosamines. So I guess the naturally occurring ones um, are not don't cause cancer, right? Because they're natural. Because they're natural. There's nothing natural that, ca- that can cause cancer. Um, I have oh a- dear. Uh, people hope, hopefully people know we're being ironic there. Um, <laughs> well, we're or, trying or something. We're trying to be ironic. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just like Alanis Morissette. Right. Right. I have one more little bot, bot story that's not mine, but I heard it for the first time not so uh, long ago. Um, my uh, good friend and colleague who I mentioned a couple of times works a lot with small processors in North Carolina, Fletcher Arrett. Fletch uh, worked um, – he did his Ph.D. at Virginia Tech with uh, Joe Eifert and, and had done some – he was working on um, on bot in um, – in modified atmosphere packaging and different different meats and different things. Anyway, Fletch said that he had he was working with I mean he was working with the with the toxin and I can't remember exactly what he was doing. Uh, basically, he had a bunch of toxin and he had to apply it into meat with syringes and ended up jabbing himself. Um, oh, that's not good. I was just no. going to say that's what you worry about. Yeah, and he and he did and he said like he had this you know panic thought as he described it in the story was like I, I had you know a, a second or so to decide what I was going to do. So what he ended up doing was um, basically dunking his hand in, um, in bleach uh, that he had uh, and hope, hoping that that the bleach uh, that it hadn't really gone into his blood system and that the bleach was going to penetrate uh, enough. And so he said that his hands got pretty burnt up, but he did not end up with um, any uh, of the really, really nasty effects of uh, the to- the toxin. Well, but he also probably at some point they stopped immunizing people, but there is a, 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 an immunization that you can get. And for many years, people who did uh, botulism research were, were required to get that. So did he have that? Gosh, and you know what? That was probably part of his story. I think that he – is it a like multiple part 
vaccination. Yeah, you, and I think you, he was, when you first yeah. get it, you, it's it's over a series of months, and then periodically every couple of years you need a booster. I want to think, want to say that it was in between. Like he wasn't sure. Like he did have it, but it had been enough. To, like he was, yeah, he was I mean, like starting it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I, I will. There's some follow up for me next time to find out that piece for Fletch. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the interesting, the interesting thing is, so so you have to go through this initial immunization, and then each time you get a booster. I've heard many people report um, that each time you get it, your reaction to it is worse. Hmm. So you start with, oh, it hurts my arm, and then your arm swells up, and and it can be uh, pretty bad. And now um, I think that they're questioning whether it's even protective or not. So I think the recommendation now is if you work with botulism uh, that you not get it Hmm. um, because there may be risks from it. Plus, I think the multivalent anti-sera that they have like for to give to people that when they get botulism or to like to give to somebody like Fletch when he when he stabbed himself, like the stuff that they airlift from the CDC, that 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 stuff is is seems to be quite effective. So so I think because they have other prophylactic measures and that the, the immunization is potentially risky and maybe not effective that they've stopped requiring people to do that. Hmm. Well, so, but that, that is definitely a, a big worry when you're doing this is yeah. stabbing yourself with a needle uh, with, with Botoxin in it. And the good, the good folks that do that research that we need, uh, uh, we, we need those answers. It's a, it's a risky, it's a hazardous job. So, um, so take care of those folks who listen to this that may be handling bot toxin. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so now, now we're almost an hour in and it's time to start the show. Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Okay. Let's, you know what we need we, before we start the show? We need another, um, a, another music bump that indicates to the listeners that the show is starting now. <laughs> okay. So we have, we've got Neil at the start and we've got Neil at the end. And we need something in the middle, and I'm I'm, I'm going to work on this. I've got the audio this. You time. got the audio, so, yeah. Uh, mark it here, and hopefully there's some something that goes on there. Uh, and okay, the show's starting now. <laughs> well, the other thing that we should mention too is that the show is starting now, and and Michelle was uh, was was bugging us. <laughs> yeah, of course. She's Earlier keeps, in she the episode, texting us. Yeah, I told her to leave us alone. We're leave busy. us alone. Um, so let's, uh, l- let's start the show with this and I don't know, this doesn't really fit into follow up, but, um, our friend, uh, and, and listener and friend of Michelle Daniluk, Aaron, you you see, uh, Aaron, Aaron, you, um, sent us a, a link to something called the egg rolly. Um, have you had a chance to look at this video? I have not. Oh, you got to look at this. Okay. So his question to us was, so tell me, doctors, do you think that you may get raw egg on your cooked rolly log as it rises from the depths of the cooker? And we'll link to this. Let me describe it. If you have a chance, take a look at it. This is He sent us a link from uh, NPR's The Salt, and it's a... Um, a, vi- a video, a YouTube video of something called the Rolly Egg Master Cooking System. And so at the start of the video, they show, um, you know, how awful it is to cook eggs and how it ruins your kitchen. And then they show this this item um, that is uh, like looks like a coffee cup that you like a travel coffee mug that you would crack an egg into. And apparently on the inside, there's a heating element that cooks that egg hot enough to make it set evenly, but you can only really seem to get it out like on a stick. So it's the egg rolly is, is this like, looks like a pogo stick. 
or not a pogo stick, a pogo or a corn dog. Um, but it's, it's all egg. And so his question was, what about the raw egg on the outside of the element? And at about 48, 46 seconds into it, there's a nice little, um, schematic of the, um, uh, of the heating system. And it looks like to me that the egg that there's not a lot of area where there might be raw eggs still on the outside, like the heating element, it makes, looks like the whole cylinder to me. So to me, it looks very, very, uh, low risk, but I like, uh, Aaron's keen eye. And also the fact that I just was able to talk for a couple of minutes about a system that makes, that makes you a corn dog egg uh, on a stick. (laughs) Because, you know, that's, that's like one of my big problems is I, I can't get enough corn, corn dog eggs in my diet no no you can't and and i i don't know about you but really the the biggest part about this roly egg master is later on in the video the marketing is about how it's great for on the go and so many times i've thought man i'm running out the door (laughs) i i really need some eggs right now what should i do oh thank thank god i can put that egg on a stick so i can drive and eat my my egg roly uh as we go along so (laughs) absolutely and you know i mean I think we need more vertical cooking technology in our lives. <laughs> yes. I was at a flea market. <laughs> our cooking our cooking is much too horizontal. It's way too horizontal. I was at a flea market a couple of years ago where they had – I might have even tweeted this um, somewhere. I'll have to go back and see if I have the picture. But there was some like vertical hot dog maker and bun toaster unit where you just drop – I mean you dropped a hot dog into the cylinder like this. And then there was – you open up your bun on the side and stuck it on, both vertical, and it cooked away and, and made you like a gas station hot dog. <laughs> so – Awesome. Thank you, Aaron, um, for – he said um, he didn't think that this was not – he thought maybe not podcast material. But I also, Oh, this is absolutely podcast yeah, material. This is, in fact, only the types of things we want to talk about. He said he almost wanted to buy one for the horror aspect. Um, so uh, thanks, Aaron, again for listening and for sending stuff. And, uh, yeah, I also – maybe at some day I'll buy a bunch of these things for this, this idea of this model test kitchen that I'll have where we can bring people in and, and actually know and answer that question about the raw egg uh, on the outside of the Roly Egg Master. Well, and, and you know, I, I should say too that you know, anytime we talk about raw eggs, I have to say that yeah, I mean, so maybe there's a probability of getting raw egg on your cooked Roly log. Uh, that question remains to be seen. The real, the real thing, the real question is what's the risk of mm-hmm. eating raw eggs in general? And you know, the risk is measurable, but relatively low. I mean, you know, the number of the, the percentage of raw eggs that are contaminated with salmonella. And actually, this was a dinner conversation or, or afternoon conversation prior to dinner at Gojo is we were talking about what foods, of course, it comes up, what foods do you eat, what foods don't you eat? Um, and we were talking about that. But I mean, the risks of raw eggs is, are relatively low. So yeah, like what, what is it in one in between one in 10,000 and one in 30,000? 20,000. That's exactly it. One in 10,000 to one in 20,000. Yeah. Okay. I was like, oh, one in 20,000 is like right in the middle of what I just said. So (laughs) no, but but one in, yeah, one in 10,000, one in 20,000. So pretty low. Someone, um, I I got, and and, oh, and you'll be appreciate this as well. Canadian eggs, apparently safer. Right. Of course. Uh, because of the, um, because of the Tim Hortons that they're fed. (laughs) Or the cold weather, one or the other. No, no, I'm pretty sure it's because um, they're only being bred to to uh, to support uh, the chickens are, are the chicken calls are going to Swiss Chalet. Um, so, 
Uh, I had a question from from a colleague today, uh, uh, Carolyn Dunn, who you've, you've uh, uh, read some of her stuff on food myths and memes. And Carolyn asked me about quail eggs. Uh, that she was at a had dinner with a colleague or a friend uh, last night, and um, who said they they don't they won't touch a raw chicken egg, uh, but they'll eat raw quail eggs because raw quail eggs will not not have raw uh, quails can't get salmonella. And so she said, myth or fact? And then I pulled four papers and said, no, they absolutely can. I don't know what the prevalence is, but they absolutely could have some salmonella enteritidis. I uh, um, pretty much think any poultry it's quails and, and lizards can have, can have salmonella. I, yep. So, um, yep. I, think, I, I think you're right. So, um, Well, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, I want to I talk a little bit about um, – uh, cantaloupes for a sure. second, if that's, if that's okay with you. So, uh, since the last time we talked, I've, um, uh, been part of a couple of cantaloupe workshops, uh, for, um, cantaloupe packers. And, uh, I, I mentioned on episode, um, uh, 38, a, a little bit about my time, um, hanging out with uh, our good friend, Michelle in, in Florida, where we, uh, she had organized a, a workshop for cantaloupe producers, an annual thing. And we talked about, um, a, uh, a situation that's going to, uh, affect a, a lot of the cantaloupe industry this summer, uh, which is, uh, FDA has sent out letters, uh, to lots and lots of different States, uh, saying that they're going to visit, um, cantaloupe pack sheds and they're going to do a bunch of sampling. And so, it's it's always you know it's always kind of hard don't know exactly the whole story uh on um how many places they're going the fda is going to go to and how much sampling they're going to do and this is the rumors that i've heard is um 36 states and in between um 50 and 60 packing sheds and they're going to uh take somewhere around 50 samples per pack shed and those samples will be environmental and product and water and from you know various zones within that uh, shed zone one to four so for those who are not familiar with zones it's like zone one's the the absolute food contact surface where those cantaloupes are going to be on like a packing line and then zone four um, is further away uh, but still could be a source of contamination so it could be something like the break room or uh, a handle on a on a door in a hallway um, so the FDA is going to generate a whole bunch of data um, and uh, the the cantaloupe industry, I, I think, um, uh, correctly so, is is fairly nervous about a couple of things. One is they no one really knows. And, and sorry, I should have mentioned that FDA is only focusing on Listeria monocytogenes. They're not looking for any other pathogens. And we've known that Salmonella has been problematic for cantaloupes for uh, quite a while. And then uh, Listeria uh, has popped up a couple of times. And one, I mean, extremely tragically with um, 33 deaths, I think it was, and um, uh, 110 illnesses uh, in 2011 linked to Jensen Farms. And we've talked about that in past episodes. But, um, but the industry, I think, is quite nervous because they're not sure really what the prevalence of Listeria monocytogenes is in their packing facilities because they've never really had to look before um, and or what it, what the prevalence is on, on cantaloupe. And we've talked about how um, it, what's there matters, but how much is there probably matters more. Uh, FDA has said that they're, they'll take some regulatory action uh, to protect public health if they find um, that samples warrant that. And that's a pretty loosey goosey, um, term that's in the, in the letters that they sent out. And I kind of read that as it, it, absolutely. If we pull a, a, a Listeria monocytogenes positive from a product, 
we're going to suggest you recall or and if you don't we'll put out a health advisory um if you you know, if we take 20 samples from your pack line and 19 of them come back with Listeria monocytogenes, then uh, we may suggest you recall. But if one comes back, we're not sure what we're going to do, uh, and we'll have a discussion uh, about it. That's kind of my estimation. So anyway, I, I, on on uh, April 10th, and then again on the 23rd, um, we, uh, me along with some other colleagues at NC State, Chris Gunter, who we had on episode four, I think, uh, and then another uh, colleague, Diane Ducharme, and um, a staff member who works for me, Audrey Kresge, we coupled with our Department of Agriculture and put on a couple of workshops and uh, uh, talk to, to cantaloupe producers. But what I so that's the that's the preamble. Here's what I you know like I was saying before, Don. I want to tell the whole story and then I'm going to ask you a question. Um, so so <laughs> I'm listening. Good, good. So here's the question. Um, I, what what I suggested to the producers. Um, so it's likely that there's going to be four or five packers in North Carolina that are visited. And FDA is going to take product. What I suggested to the to the packers was, if they're one of the ones that that get that visit, um, and they don't know, I mean, what the prevalence is, maybe they have some sort of sampling, but no one kind of shared that with us. Um, that I would do this um, if I was the if I got notification that FDA was coming tomorrow, I would do I would clean down my line, I would clean down my entire. Um, a pack facility very, 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 very well. And I would document everything. And I would know everything about the uh, chemical sanitizer that I use, the san- the um, concentration, um, everything that uh, I, all the material that I could get my hands on to va- to show that this has been validated. Um, as my SOP is in place and, and I've done some validation of it. And then when, when FDA shows up, and takes their environmental samples and their product samples, um, I may choose to not run like a full run of cantaloupes down my line. Uh, and then I would hold those products. I would hold whatever I ran down the line, um, keep it in my cooler separate from everything else. And then I would proceed to do the exact same sanitation that I did um, beforehand and doing as much as I can to, to demonstrate that there was a clear break um, two clear breaks, uh, in, in, uh, the production line. And then I think if I'm that producer, I just eat those 80 boxes or eight pallets or whatever it is of that product and never put it into commerce. Because I think that if I do put it into commerce, I know if it comes back with something, uh, some positive, um, that I'm going to be forced to do a recall. But if I don't put it into commerce, then I'm, it's not, um, the regulatory action is not as clear. And so I, as I was kind of saying this to um, to the cantaloupe packers, I mean, just thinking of it as what, you know, how I would handle it, um, I, you know, I, I got to thinking of it's, I mean, it's, that is probably doesn't help, you know, it gets a little bit of help to FDA, I guess, because they're still understanding it. But the way that this kind of program is being um, produced is it, it's not... The objective appears to be that they want to know more about um, what happens, but maybe they're not the right folks to do that. Um, F- FDA, you know, the, these regulatory inspections and the sampling, because the it, it behooves the producer to not make it as realistic as possible, because the the threat of a of a recall is is pretty like it's a pretty big consequence for participating in a, a baseline understanding of what the state of 
Listeria monocytogenes is in cantaloupe pack sheds. So my question is, I guess, is how you know what do you what do you think of that? I, I guess advice that I provided or um, that strategy is that what you know what what do you what what do you think? Well, yeah, I think that that strategy that you're recommending to the producers is spot on. But <clears throat> there's a number of other points in all of that that I think are are really important. Um, one is, yeah, we we need to know <clears throat> a baseline for cantaloupe and listeria, without a doubt. We yeah. we need to know that for, in fact, all fresh produce, right? So the question I have to ask is, so why? Why is F? I mean, and I guess I can kind of understand that we had a big outbreak. People died. Um, I'm not convinced that it's not a unique one-off hmm. experience. That 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 tragic tragic outbreak is actually not really all that common. And there was a unique set of circumstances that caused that. Um, you know, in an ideal world, I would say that the cantaloupe industry needs, since we're talking about cantaloupe, um, the cantaloupe industry should have already gotten out ahead of this and they should have already decided to spend some money and kind of get baseline data. Um, but they haven't and and maybe they're not all that well organized. But the key point in all of this, and I miss this, I, mean, I, I and I've got it in the up in my browser and we'll link to it in show notes as a link to the to the FDA letter that went out. I'm very curious about what all of this is costing, and I suspect that the biggest cost is the labor cost, that is people going out and doing the sampling. And why, for God's sakes, if they're in cantaloupe packing sheds, why are they not testing for salmonella? Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Because, because uh, yeah, we know we've had outbreak after outbreak with salmonella um, yes, I'm worried about listeria. Yes, you know, it's a problem. But salmonella, in my mind, is a bigger problem. And there's a wonderful opportunity where people are going out there and collecting samples. Why not collect samples for salmonella too? It just – it seems mm-hmm. out of – in my mind, as, as, as a guy who thinks about risk, this particular activity seems out of proportion to the risk. And again, I understand that, that, I mean, we want regulations to be science-based. We want regulators to act according to the science. I'd like to see the risk assessment that said that, or I'd like, I'd like to be the fly on the wall inside the policy discussions at, at CIFSAN and, uh, and within FDA that said, okay, who thinks this is a good idea and why is this a good idea? And guess what? This is, this is costing us, the taxpayers, money and and who made the decision that this is the best use of that money? Because my my gut feeling, and it's only a gut feeling, is that it's not a good use of money. Not not that we not that fresh produce safety isn't important, but this, you know. And again, maybe it's maybe it's just damage control. Maybe it's reacting to this outbreak. And yeah, blah blah blah. I understand all of that, but you know, I I don't know. It just doesn't it it doesn't add up to me. And I, I'm willing to be convinced that I'm wrong, but it just doesn't add up to me. Well, and I, I mean, I think you, you bring up a really good point here is, um, yes, we don't know a lot about the Listeria situation in packing sheds, and we've had one outbreak, and we also don't know what the Salmonella situation is in packing sheds. And we've, and we've had, had multiple. <laughs> we've, and we've had a bunch of outbreaks. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. So so if you're uh, – I mean, I think that's a that's a spot-on point that – you're already out there 
it's really just collecting some more samples and processing them because you're going to have, I mean, these are 60 days if it's, or, or you know, just here in North Carolina, if they're going to four or five different packing facilities, it's not like they're all on the same road. I mean, you're talking, um, you know, thinking about multiple, uh, um, you, you've got to meet with the, the the packer. You're going to then do some sort of an inspection of this facility and then take these samples. I mean, I, I assume that this is 60 uh, work days plus travel from site to site and, and hotels and, and absolutely. And I don't know. We, I don't know the particulars of this, and this will play out over the next couple of months. But whether these individuals are all coming from D.C. or if they're regional folks, like I mean, that it, it, you know, you get into that that full calculation. But yeah, this the the budget around this um, seems, and it's not. Again, I, I agree with you. It's we need to know more, but we could learn a lot more by just adding an extra little percent of the the money, or 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 redirecting um, some of it towards uh, salmonella. And, and and it doesn't affect. I mean, it doesn't affect that individual or that industry any differently because I mean, I I, I still think, um, well, I think they're going to find salmonella every once in a while, and I think they're going to find listeria every once in a while. And and the real issue is, um, you know, <laughs> if it's and this this came up when I was in in Florida with some discussions with retailers. What what I think the retailers are worried about is this idea of rolling recalls. That you know we've gone to 50 packing sheds and 35 of them had product that had listeria on it, and the risk might be very low. But we now have 35 recalls for U.S. cantaloupe, um, and we don't have any cantaloupe uh, to to sell. And and well while the um, the the relative risk to, to public health is, is is potentially pretty small because they're not doing an enumeration. I mean, it's it's a it's an adulterant when it's on that ready to eat food, and it becomes a ready to eat food, not a raw agriculture commodity as soon as there's a positive for Listeria monocytogenes, which is also a whole mess. Right, and and you know, and and what I'm af- what I'm afraid will happen is they'll find maybe if they look for it, they would find some salmonella. I suspect when they find when they look for listeria, they might find a lot of it. Yes, right. I mean, not a lot of it there, but a lot, a lot, uh, a lot. It's it's highly prevalent because it's in it's a it's an environmental organism. I mean, and and you know, and th- th- just to 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 kind of do a callback to the ISGP conference, there was somebody there who whose name I don't remember, and I couldn't say it anyway, <laughs> who made a statement at one point about well. Um, I forget what the context was, but it was something to the effect that well, food safety is is all just you know cut and dry. It's all it's all facts. I guess it was, so. We had a presenter about biotechnology, and maybe the point he was trying to make was something like, well, with biotechnology, it's a little more squishy, or with food security, having enough to food is a little more. But food safety, it's cut and dry. And I said. Wait a minute, wait a minute, stop right there. If food safety is cut and dry, why do we allow less than 100 per gram in Canada and below the, 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 the border? We don't allow any listeria. Uh, at any level in food, in ready to eat food, it's not cut and dry, right? No. And this, and this, just this whole issue of listeria is dangerous. Listeria is dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Listeria, I, I, I grant listeria is dangerous, but a hundred listeria per serving is probably not dangerous, and it's certainly way less dangerous than a hundred salmonella per serving. Yeah. And that, and the, and and yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's very, uh, it's very discouraging when you see when you see things like this. Well, and and it will. I, I, this this whole situation is kind of in the guise of finding out more about what's going on, but really it's going to end up being 
uh, uh, scaring people into doing something, which, you know, like we talked about in episode 30, 38, a little bit on, um, foot and mouth disease and, um, having those, uh, foot baths. Maybe, maybe there is some, some, uh, effect this, this shakes the industry enough or individuals within the industry enough to say, Oh man, someone's going to come look. Well, I better, I better get everything in order. I better really know how to do sanitation. That's, that's great. But is it worth the amount of money to do so? <laughs> right, right. What's the return on investment? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, good. So that was that. That's been my my cantaloupe stuff, and I, if, uh, we're, we're going to be um, working with our Department of Agriculture folks and going out to a few um, uh, pack sheds, uh, uh, you know, physically going out there and, and um, uh, sort of pointing out where, you know, if if you were an FDA inspector, where you might look for listeria and what you might be looking for. So um, it's it, this this is kind of the first. Um, situation of them and us that I've felt in when working with, uh, with any industry. I mean, and not, not just since I've been here in North Carolina, but I mean, in, in my career on, on this stuff, it's, um, this, this very much feels like we don't know what exactly what's going to happen and no one's going to really tell us or tell anybody involved. And, um, uh, you know, it's like a cat and mouse game a little bit. So that's, that, I don't think that's the way it should be. I don't think that's what food safety should be all about. No, and you, you know what else doesn't inspire confidence? If you go to – if you Google cantaloupe FDA letter, you find a webpage and then in the webpage it says we previously issued a letter to the cantaloupe industry and there's a link there. And when you click that link, it says uh, we can't find this page. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> FDA, if you're listening, that does not inspire confidence. <laughs> Make sure the links on your webpage work. Just just takes one little nerd to do that. That's right, one little nerd. <laughs> it doesn't 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 take up much space. No, doesn't require too much. Just give them a computer, pay them a decent living wage. Click through stuff and yep. Ah, <laughs> uh, so what else? What do you uh, what 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 strikes your fancy? Well. While we're while we're talking, and this is um, you know this is kind of relevant to this whole FDA thing, and it is relevant to conversations that we had earlier today. And it was the first uh, it's the first thing that the most recent thing that you posted um, to our mm. our discussion file. And I actually in 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 a in an interesting bit of synchronicity. Um, so I was I don't usually read USA Today, but I was reading USA Today because I woke up at a hotel and I grabbed it and. <laughs> You know, I need something to read on the airplane. I really, I didn't really feel. I mean, it's a very short flight. I didn't really feel like actually doing any actual looking at my computer work. So I was reading the newspaper, and uh, there was an, an excellent article. Um, uh, well, actually, there was a cover art, cover story on food safety, and then it was continued on the inside. Um, and I'm glad I read all the way to the end um, because at the end, again, our, our good friend and colleague that we've talked about uh, on the last podcast and many other podcasts, Doug Powell, was quoted. Um, uh, and uh, so, it, again, the article, and we can we can go back and talk about the article, but we'll we'll lead with uh, we'll lead with the the, the ending and, and and the punchline. Um, so the headline is sequester to reduce FDA food inspections. Official says, um, and and um, um, Hamburg Commissioner Hamburg is quoted, and and um, uh, Mike Taylor is quoted. But then at the very end. Um, uh, as, as you put so so aptly, a good Doug quote, um, and and Doug's point I think is that yes, there's sequestration, there's budget cuts, but but guess what? Um, and this is you know quote uh, Doug speaking quote the government is there to maintain a minimal standard, but they really inspect very little food, 
end quote. Uh, Powell said, uh, end quote, it is not in a company's best interest to take it is it is in a company's best interest to take that seriously and not make their customers barf end quote and and that and that is how the story ends uh with that wonderful little word there barf um so so good good for Doug for getting a quote in there and uh, I don't know I mean what, so what do you I mean this this whole sequestration thing yeah. You know, not to get too too political and too um, um, too U.S. specific. I, I know we have listeners elsewhere in the, in the world, but um, it 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 bugs me that that Congress can't work this thing out. Um, but I I do have to kind of agree, and and I feel really bad for uh, federal employees that are going to be you know have uh, layoffs or are going to have to uh, you know to 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 not work and not get paid. I mean that's that's horrible. Um, it did impact me recently or had the potential to impact me because I was traveling by air. And of course, uh, there's TSA cuts, there's air traffic controller cuts. Um, I read actually part of, maybe it was part of this whole FDA story. I was, I, I was reading in USA Today or some other story I was reading in USA Today said it was quoting somebody from the Canadian, again, because you know, of course <laughs> we love Canada, the Canadian air traffic controllers who a number of years ago privatized and they're no longer part of the federal government. And for the most part, are pretty functional. Uh, and so, I don't know, it just got me thinking about this whole, um, what a mess it is in Washington and, and FDA and food safety and air traffic safety. And I don't know, I mean, I, I don't really have a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me, so, so my, I guess my, my take on this whole thing, um, is I, this, the, the first time that someone said our food is going to be less safer because of this, because the, and, and especially it was in, in respect or, with with respect to um, to beef inspection, um, that you know the and the sequestration is going to matter so much. And really, what it does is it slows things down. It's not like things can still happen on the beef side without an inspector there. It just means you know slow it down, and the the price may go up. What you know whatever. Um, but I, I mean. I, I, I'm so so. I don't see it as being. It's absolutely a mess. I just don't think it impacts the output of the food so much, um, because where where I think we see things change is not so much on the inspection, but when something bad happens, not inspection wise, that a pathogen's found and it's been reported through the reportable uh, database and there's a recall and then FDA goes out and follows up, which I don't think that stops um, here if there's an outbreak uh, uh, at all, um, that, that that work's not, not being done. Um, it's just those sort of general inspections that, that happen. That's where, where I see things move. It's, it's when, you know, it's the the 483 report from Jensen Farms and from Chamberlain Farms and and the warning letters that happen that are that are not as a result of those routine inspections that some something happened and then when something happens someone looks closer so that to me as long as it doesn't impact those then then I don't think food safety's you know impacted all that much but but I don't I, I'm I'm speaking on that from the outside I don't know the the intricacies of it um uh, sort of beyond beyond what I read and talk to people about so so I don't know and it's yeah it's a it's a mess but I don't know if it, it's really has the impact um like you know you know, it's it, it was it was I'm sure a pain for those who are stuck on planes, but it's not a um, less safe plane of uh, you know uh, air, 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 airline industry. 
Well, yeah, if everything, if everything slows down, if, if food production slows down, if, if, if air movement slows down, it's certainly in the short run, I think that the impact on safety is minimal. If we have a, a lasting 18% cut in inspections, that eventually will lead mm-hmm. to a situation where somebody should have been somewhere and should have seen something and they didn't. I mean, the problem is it's very it's very difficult to prove that, right? I mean, you'd really need to run at 18% reduced inspection for a long time and, and it, you, you can never get the denominators exactly right. But I mean, so long term, it's not a good thing. I think short term, if it draws some attention and it forces Congress to take some action, it's probably a good thing. But, but I mean, yeah. So just because we're 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 suddenly slowing down the number of in- inspections, I mean, we're already not really inspecting very much, well, right? I mean, if you really, yeah. Doug, I mean, to Doug, again, back to Doug's point, right? If you really believe that government inspectors make food safe, then um, we're in deep trouble. It's really up to the industry to make food safe. Well, and I mean, I think that's that's what I would say as well. So if it was eighteen percent less over the long term. Is that any different? Like, should we already be 18% more than it is now or, or whatever the, the, the mathematics are? Like, that's assuming that that the amount of inspections that we have today um, are any more effective than than it would be if it was 18%. Like, because someone already might be not at a place where they should be and miss something. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was <laughs> – right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's there's really nothing else to say on that. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, there is there is one other thing that I that I had on my list of kind of like a must have thing to talk about, and you had Let's added it. it. Um, and it was uh, a shout out to to an individual who uh, who works for me part time, but is a, uh, a a public policy student at UNC Chapel Hill, Ashley Chaffetz, and she uh, she's written two barf blog posts in the last uh, couple of weeks about salmonella in her dog food, and you'd added this into the notes file, um, and uh, about dog, Doug um, sort of uh, commenting on it. So so the story is this that Ashley. Um, uh, had bought some dog food um, from uh, Natura, Natura. I don't know how to pronounce that either. Um, and uh, it was uh, her. The dog food that she purchased was part of a recall due to salmonella, and then that recall um, kept expanding, kept expanding. And she was provided with the voucher uh, to go buy some more, so she did. And then she purchased, uh, or she was given uh, um, dog food the second time around, which then became included in the same recall. And so. Her, her situation was she doesn't she didn't know a whole lot about salmonella and dog food. She just knew that it was it was bad as uh, as she kind of dug into it and sort of learned a little bit about the risk. She wrote about that and um, risk to her, risk to her dog. Uh, and then um, when the recall expanded and, and um, more product was taken off the um, the market, the very same one that was her given to her as a replacement, she said, um, I, I just don't want to buy from them anymore. I'm not confident that they can handle food safety. And, you know, I thought that was, I thought it was some good writing by her, but it was a really interesting story of someone who, I mean, she knows, she's not a microbiologist. She looks at the policy of food safety uh, a little bit, but she's a public policy person. And really in this instance was acting, you know, like a, like a consumer, she was concerned for her dog and didn't feel that, that the company she was buying from was managing things very well. So she's staying away from them. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, good for her for writing blog posts because that's something as we as we talked about <laughs> offline uh, that I would like to do more of, and I'm counting on you to nag me. Right, um, right. But more. yeah, but good good for her. I mean, it, it, there there are a couple of uh, real nice posts, and and yeah, I mean, and this whole I mean, this whole thing of, of you can get salmonella from your pet food. It's a relatively recent thing, mm-hmm. and and it kind of uh, when it first started happening, it made perfect sense to me. I mean, these. Are animal products. They're produced in, in and hopefully a, in most cases, a clean and sanitary environment. But guess what? They can have salmonella. The salmonella can cross-contaminate. Um, the uh, animal feed industry or the pet food industry needs to be just as safe. Uh, animals can get salmonella and people can get salmonella. And again, there have been a couple of, uh, a couple of outbreaks that, uh, have, that the CDC has published in Morbidity Mortality Weekly Reports about people who get Salmonellosis from handling that not that they're eating the dog food, but they just simply get it from handling the dog food, giving the treats to the dog, and then you know touching something or touching putting their finger in their mouth or, or something, and 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 they get food poisoning. So or they get they get salmonellosis. So yeah, so so just a yeah nice nice work, uh, Ashley, for uh, for writing those you know part one and part two. Yes, and um, I did uh, have a little bit of a hand in those posts. Uh, really, I just wrote the headlines. Well, she gave me a list of headlines, and um, she said, "Ah, but this one's dumb." Um, you know, a play on Snoop Dogg, uh, Snoop Doggy Dog. Let's call it Poop Doggy Dog. And I was like, "Are you kidding? That's dumb. That's gold. That's the greatest thing. <laughs> That's the best part about your post." <laughs> so, Poop Doggy Dog, Part One and Part Two. Excellent. <laughs> well done. Excellent. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, we're, we're an hour and a half into things here. Um, you, you have a call, I think not too long from now with, uh, my, uh, employers at the CDC. Maybe, I don't know. It's, um, uh, they probably don't listen to the show, but their, uh, yeah, organization's not their strong suit. So I don't know if I have a call or not. I have to actually go look at email (laughs) to see if anything got scheduled in the time that I haven't been looking at email, but probably don't, but we should, we should probably wrap things up. We should, we should. Okay. Well, um, uh, thanks uh, again to everybody. Oh, one actually, before we go, we did want to mention that um, uh, we had in our notes uh, that we were going to uh, make a larger logo, so hopefully we can get featured by um, iTunes, and we did that, and there are some folks at um, SHS, a uh, design company that we work with uh, here in uh, Raleigh, who did that design logo, so a big thank you to SHS. I'm not sure oh, if they're listening. Yeah, I mean, huge, cool. a huge, 1,400 by 1,400 thanks. Yes, uh, exactly. Out to the folks at SHS Design for doing that. So that was awesome. Um, so, but yeah, that was, want to do that before we go, and then to listeners, as always, uh, feel free to uh, check us out on iTunes or come and make comments on the blog. Uh, the blog, the uh, website, foodsafetytalk.com. Uh, but uh, uh, leave leave comments, good, bad, whatever. Just tell us uh, how we're doing and what you want to talk about, and uh, give us some some ideas, and we'll uh, we'll give you our our responses. So thanks again, and Don, uh, as always, great to talk to you. Likewise, Ben. Bye bye. Bye.
Okay. Good episode. Yeah, that was good. I think. Yeah, I think we need to uh, we need to remember to tell people to rate the show. That's good. I'm glad you remember that. Yeah, I'm trying to like make sure I saw it in there, so I was like, oh, let's do that um, at the end. Because yeah, it's good. Well, because that's the logical time when somebody would rate it. Because yeah. then now they just finish listening and they can uh, they can finish listening and then just go right to iTunes and rate it. So yeah, perfect. I'm gonna look right now to see if anybody else has rated us recently. Um. Uh, here's one. I don't know if we talked about this one. I saw this one by horn section as a food safety professional. Do you see this? No, I was, I was, I was a food safety professional. I was pleased when I stumbled across a food safety podcast as a music lover. I was floored the first time I heard the opening oh. and it was Neil Young's distinctive fuzzy whammy guitar tone. I knew that I had found more than what I was looking for. <laughs> wow. Nice. I've learned, learned quite a bit from listening and enjoy the risk-based discussion. It's certainly slanted heavily towards the biological aspects of food safety, but that is the caster's area of expertise. Uh, it would be nice to hear about some of the chemical and physical hazards as well. I recommend listening to anyone in the food industry. Well, that's cool. Maybe we'll uh, shout out to Horn Section if they're listening after dark. And uh, we'll, uh, if you want to tell us about what in chemical and physical you want to talk about, maybe Don and I can figure out how to do that. Although, I don't know a whole lot about that area. Yeah, pretty much Pretty much the real risks are microbiological. Exactly. So now we've alienated that, that listener. Okay. Well, <laughs> but Horn Section, we'll put some more Neil Young in there for you. <laughs> Yeah, no, but ser- seriously, thanks, uh, thanks for rating rating the show. Uh, it's a, it's a, tr- it's a, it really does. It, it's nice for us to get the feedback, but also it's very helpful uh, for us to uh, to help other people find the show. If you go in, you rate the show. Um, it helps other people know that people are listening, and and definitely does does help us uh, build the grow the listener base. So we we very much thanks to Horn Section for doing okay. that. There's, I don't know if I ever, we talked about this one. There's another one from N Heindel. I've been listening since June 2012, and the episodes keep getting better. These oh. guys have the perfect mix of academia and hanging out with your buddies at happy hour. Oh, that, that's what we <laughs> aspire to. That's it. So, that's it. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. Awesome. awesome. All right. Um, so good stuff. Well, there you go. Um, speaking, of, speaking of which, a segue, um, mm-hmm. there's an individual who is, is begging to be a, 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 a guest of our show. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> You know, you know who I'm talking about. Um, that would be the the famous uh, PC Visava. That's correct. So um, does he listen? I, no, he. I had to send him the link. Um, so he may be listening now, uh, but uh, he's he he uh, as the outreach portion of the Food Safety Preventive Controls Alliance. He would like to come on and talk to us about preventive controls, and I would like to talk to him about other things. Preventive, we can get to that, but. Um, but like with Andreas, it's always nice to learn more about the people that we that we interact with. So, um, so what I suggested to him was to listen to some, and then you and I would uh, um, sort of um, figure out a date where we might want to record something like that. Yeah, that that sounds good. And I mean, he does. I mean, he does need to get um, at least uh, like a the uh, Dan Benjamin approved oh, cheap yeah. cheap uh, headset. Plantronics. Plantronics. That's it. Yeah. Yes, we will. Uh, we'll set him up uh, with the material, the the website on where he can get that stuff. But yes. And does does he? Um, I guess it doesn't matter as long as he uses Skype. Yeah. And he. Oh, well, and he has to sit close to his router. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> okay. So you know how like I've, we're we're gonna make T-shirts, right? That I'm gonna get. So I think that's what I'm gonna put on the T-shirt is food safety talk. 
and on the back you have to sit close to your router i like or, it or something something like that something like make that. sure you're sitting close to your router sounds good so i think bats will like that um yes cool okay good um so we got all uh okay so i'm on audio for this for episode 39 mm-hmm. good and i will uh actually so I was listening to the audio for 38 when I was doing the show notes, mm-hmm. um, and on my um, on my MacBook Air as the end of the, our show, you know, because I the I I just used the raw unedited one that I sent to um, to Andreas or we sent to Andreas, mm-hmm. and afterwards the next track that came up is a song by KRS One. I don't know if you are familiar with KRS One, but they are. I am not. Well, they're a hip-hop band from Southern California that were very popular in the late 90s or mid-90s. Actually, I think one of their members died in a sort of gang-related something. But anyway, KRS-One, is um, they, ha- they have a song called Rappers Are in Danger that came on directly after like you and I signing off. And I was like, man, that's a really good outgoing bump. And it's this cool song called Rappers Are in Danger. So I may actually do – I may um, throw Rappers Are in Danger as our um, the show is on audio if I can figure out how to do that. <laughs> yes, and for those who are who are searching for that, that is Rappers yes. Are in Danger. Correct, correct. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I uh, um, translated that for you and for our listeners. Right, from, from rap into English. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I always kind of prefer to call it hip hop. Uh, so. Oh, I think that's probably another podcast. <laughs> it probably is, but I'm. I, I, there's something. There's there's some sort of um, connotation that I don't like. Rap is not cool because that's what my parents would call it. So I'd be like, no man, I'm listening to hip hop. <laughs> but the name of the show is Rappas Are in Danger. Look, I understand. I understand. <laughs> Not hip hop uh true. Anyway, I'm going to throw some KRS-One in there, and I think you'll like it. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> um, look, I'm just looking at the Rappas RN Danger uh, Wikipedia page, and it comes from their self-titled album in 1995. And there's some great samples like Come On, Come Over by Jacko Pistorius and Toys by Herbie Hancock. There you go. <laughs> oh, cool DJ Herc. Um, oh, also, uh, we do really need to plan on um, doing – when we have a light week of news or like couple of things, which never happens, we do need to do the Wire episode, like where we just talk about the just Wire. Just talk about the Wire? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I've been uh, – you know, I, I, I was all set to listen uh, when I was in Italy because uh, I brought the CDs with me that I'm well, like in the middle of season three. But then I, I realized I forgot my um, external – uh, drive because my my MacBook uh, Mac, MacBook Pro does not have a a CD drive right. on it, so um, I had the CDs but not the drive. And then I took the uh, I would have listened to it last night, but I was just like so exhausted all that talking with the yeah. <laughs> folks at Gojo. I mean, Dane and I got back after the second day, and it's just like, whoa, I'm just really tired. <laughs> I can't. I just want to go back to my room and go to sleep, even though it's eight thirty. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm behind on my rewatching of The Wire. But yes, that sounds like a great idea. Excellent. Oh, and apparently um, uh, Michelle is going to organize a um, – at, at next year's IAFP is going to organize a symposium where you and I just talk to each other. 
<laughs> it's going to be awesome. But, but except that, what did she say? She said that we, we, we have, have to write, write it. it. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to we have to write it. So. Oh well, I, I'm that that look for. I look forward to that. We I know we last year we talked about um, you maybe coming for science online. Right, and and then we just didn't do it, and I didn't go at all. I think we should get that on our schedule for next year because it's okay. It, it all it kind of like jumps up on on you or on me, because um, all the stuff gets like filed away and sealed on what they're doing for their um, program in um, September, and you only have like a certain like, and there's a whole like wiki page that people add to, and but it's it's got some like. Um, Marin McKenna from Wired and Deborah Blum from, um, I think she's in the UK, The Guardian. She's, you know, these folks have all sort of been here. That's how I follow them on Twitter is just through the the contacts there. There's a guy, uh, Bora um, uh, Zakovich, I think his name is. He lives in Durham, but he's the um, social media blog guy for Scientific American. And so he's really the, one of the driving forces behind this big this conference. So I think it would be cool. It's one of those ones that it would be cool. I just want to go attend. Like I just want to go listen to what other people are doing with talking about food, you know science online and see if there's some other folks out there that that we can um, glean ideas from. So oh yeah, and speaking speaking of like science online stuff. So one of the groups that the Gojo people work with is a guy at the University of Iowa that does a lot of stuff with social media and um, 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 outbreak detection and stuff like that. Oh. So they actually know him. So uh, And I have a, a link sitting in my email, which I'll forward on to you about he. So he has this whole research group there um, that, that studies, you know, epidemiology as it relates to online stuff. And this, that's something cool. that, you know, we've, we've talked about before on the podcast. We might have even mentioned him in his group, but apparently the folks at Gojo actually do, uh, do know him and work with him. Huh, cool. Well, that's awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so, 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 yeah, so we should definitely try to do this. And I had that, the, that, that conference in my calendar and then it just was getting yeah. close to it. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to hope that Ben says, doesn't say anything about it. Cause I really don't have yeah. time to go. So, I did the same um, but thing. yeah, but I would, I would love if we could get organized and actually do something there. Um, I would love to, I would love to do that. Well, I was thinking, you know, we've got to get Doug, he's got to make some sort of pilgrimage over to the U S every once in a while. So I was thinking it would be a good spot for him to come hang out in Raleigh and, um, you get uh, come to that because I think he might enjoy that as well. Yeah, no, and, and the, the, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think the three of us um, hanging out there and, and and being part of this conference would be would be wonderful. That's a great idea. Oh, all right, all right. That's, oh, that's and wonderful. and by the way, I've already written the title for the IAFP symposium. It's called Don and Ben talk about poop for ninety minutes. Oh, excellent. Of course. <laughs> oh, and that's right. And Michelle said and vomit. Oh, and, and possibly vomit. Possibly yes, exactly. vomit. Yeah, we won't promise. We don't. Anything we don't want to be uh, too uh, too poop centric. No, and not inclu- not inclusive. Not inclusive. Well, good stuff. All right, I think uh, I think we did it. All right. Um, so I will. I think I talked to you on Monday with their uh, writing buddies call. But other than that, I will uh, see you on or l- talk to you virtually on the ninth uh, around four o'clock. That that sounds great, and uh, yeah. So let's see. So you're doing the audio, and I'll do the show notes. Um, will can you put the audio up for Andreas? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to do that right now. Perfect. Because yeah, because he likes to do it over the weekend. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah. So if we can get it to him, yeah, I'll do it right now. So he's going to have an all day or all weekend. He likes to get up fairly early Saturday morning to do this. I think. Oh, excellent. All right. <laughs> all right. I'll talk all to right. you later, Don. Bye bye. Bye.